Please turn your, t- take your Bible and turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 this morning. The message today is entitled, Sola Fide, or Fide and Works. From James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Last Monday, April 18th, was a very important anniversary in church history. On that date, 495 years ago, was the Imperial Diet of Worms. It concluded that day with a rather bold and courageous confession before the emperor of the quote-unquote Holy Roman Empire and representatives of the Roman Catholic Church at the time. A man whom you've heard before, named Martin Luther, knowing his very life was at risk, stood before this court and spoke these famous words. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by, or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is, either, is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. With these words, Luther signed his death certificate. Because a statement like, I do not trust in either the Pope or the councils was heresy. And in that dark time in world history, heresy was a crime punishable by death. So what in the world would compel one man to stand alone before the church and the emperor himself and make such a daring public profession? What would cause a man to do that? I mean, I, I'm, I'm convicted when I read this because I, I have to be honest with myself. I don't know if I would do what he did. He stood alone and said these words in fear and trembling because the gospel was at stake. It had been over three years since Luther nailed his 95 theses to a church door in a small town called Wittenberg. And the more time went on, the more Luther's passion and flame for the word of God. As he began to clearly see through the study of the word, that the doctrine dispensed to the Catholic Church at the time did not match the doctrine according to Jesus and the apostles. The church taught that you could buy an indulgence and free a relative from purgatory. But guess what? The Bible does not teach that. The church taught that Mary, the natural born sinning mother of Jesus, could intercede on behalf of the faithful. But guess what? The Bible does not teach that. The Catholic church taught and still teaches that the Pope is, quote unquote, the vicar of Christ. Meaning Christ's vicarious, uh, authoritative representative on earth. 
But guess what? The Bible does not teach that. And Luther could smell a rat. The church taught that works and faith work together, resulting in salvation from condemnation. But guess what? The Bible does not teach that. Or does it? Does the Bible teach that good works result in saving faith? Or are good works the root or the fruit of salvation? There's a question that is just as important today as it was in the time of Luther and it was at the time of James. What is the relationship between faith and works? As good Protestants, as good Bible church members, what we're going to do is allow the word of God alone to answer that question for us. Amen? In James 2, 14 and 26, James announces a new topic, which is the relationship between works and faith. Follow along as I read this passage out loud. James 2, 14 to 26. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But you are willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see, that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. It's a lot in there, isn't it? I'm going to attempt to explain this passage in the next 35, 40 minutes. To answer the question, what is the relationship between works and faith, James offers us three convincing clarifications that will help us understand how our good works relate to saving faith. Three convincing clarifications. This needs to be clarified, and we're going to clarify that this morning. And you must understand and know these clarifications for a couple of reasons. 
First and foremost, you need to understand what James is saying here. Because if you misunderstand justification, you will misunderstand the gospel. And if you misunderstand the gospel, then your soul's in danger. One commentator said, this paragraph is the most theologically significant as well as the most controversial letter in James. Therefore, second reason why you need to understand this very clearly is for apologetic purposes. You need to rightly understand this passage so when, so when the time comes, you hear an unbelieving friend enslaved to a works righteous religion, when you hear them quote this verse, you will be able to explain it to them. With a clear conscience and with clarity. So the first clarification that James gives us with regard to the relationship between works and faith is in verses 14 to 17, and that's this. Good works demonstrate a living faith. Number one, good works demonstrate a living faith. In this section, he asserts three rhetorical questions that make the case that faith and good works cannot be divorced, okay? Look at verse 14. He says, what use, in other words, what profit or what gain is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? This question that we just read, it creates the idea in the mind of somebody making an empty profession of faith in Christ. More specifically, it speaks to one who says he's a Christian, but his behavior and ethics display something totally different, perhaps even the opposite. James says, can that faith save him? Which faith? Well, the faith that has no works. And the obvious answer is no. That faith cannot save him. Save him from what? Save him from the wrath to come. Now, true saving faith in Christ cannot be divorced from obedience to Christ, which is all that James means by works. Good works equals obedience to Christ. Our profession of faith, if it is genuine or real, will be demonstrated by our behavior. And he provides an example of this. So there's clarity here. Remember, these are clarifications. He's clarifying what he just asked his audience. He provides an example of somebody who has an empty profession. Look at verse 15. If a brother or sister... Now... Stop right there, and I want you to observe something. It says, brother or sister. Who is a brother or a sister? Us. He's talking about the church. He's talking about the family of God. Your, your fellow Christian. Somebody in your own assembly. If someone in your church is without clothing or in need of daily food, Basically, somebody who's homeless. Somebody in your midst who finds themselves naked and hungry. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. Now, that's a pathetic response, isn't it? That is a pathetic response by a so-called Christian. The one who is told the need basically gives a fake, superficial, but spiritually sounding answer 
Another commentator says that this response functioned as a religious cover for the failure to act. Now, how common is this? How common is it in the church for something like this to happen? Meaning, how common is it for professing believers to say one thing because it sounds nice and right and spiritual, but then they prove otherwise by their lack of action? Perhaps most commonly in our day, and I'm guilty of it, I'm not pointing fingers. What's common in our day is that we'll say, when we, when we hear a brother or sister struggling or in need or somebody who's having a hard time, we say, what do we say? I'll pray for you, right? And then either we don't because we forget, or instead of merely praying for somebody, we don't think to actually go do something that requires time, money, or sacrifice. Now, we should speak kindly. And we should pray for people. But look at what James says next. And yet, you do not give what is necessary for their body. In other words, talk isn't enough. The faith that the responder has, which has caused him to use nice language, maybe even well-attended language, That response doesn't matter because he failed to meet the need. And James is saying, if all you ever do is talk, he says, what use is that? Look in the text that says it. What use is that? And obviously, it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? It's useless. It's worthless. And in verse 17, James says it's a dead one. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. So the person who professes Christ while living a disobedient life is dead even while he lives. Spiritually speaking, he's like a zombie, aimlessly going about his own business while talking the talk. Now here's where the truth even gets harder for us. There are millions of professing Christians who have this type of faith. There are millions of professing churchgoers who have a dead faith. They may be orthodox in their doctrine to a degree, meaning they can intellectually give lip service to the truthfulness of the Bible, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth and resurrection, ascension, and so on. Basically, you can, you can affirm the Apostles' Creed and still have a dead faith. They could even profess to hold, uphold a similar standard of morality as the Bible does, meaning, you know, they hate divorce. They think it's wrong to lie, cheat, steal, murder, blaspheme, and betray. Even that doesn't mean a person can be saved. They might even attend church their whole life, being involved in youth group, Awanas, catechism, Sunday school, you name it. Yet, will go to their grave with a dead faith. Because what James is saying here is that merely holding to cold orthodoxy, practicing universal morality, and attending church events consistently is indicative with dead faith. So, my brothers and sisters, 
What James is saying here to us is that if you profess Christ and do not have a genuine love for the church, might I dare say that it's likely that you could have a dead faith. And if you profess to be a Christian and have more zeal and passion for the things of the world than for things of God, I submit to you that you probably do have a dead faith. Because good works, obedience to Christ, love for the church, demonstrate living faith. That's the first clarification. The second clarification James offers us with regard to the relationship between works and faith is that good works reveal saving faith. First, good works demonstrate a living faith. Second, good works reveal a saving faith. Verses 18 to 20. In verse 18, he says, but someone may well say. Okay, so James moves on to a new stage in his argument by engaging in a discussion with another person whom he here quotes. But who exactly is James quoting? Who is the someone? Well, I think the best interpretation is to say that the someone is really a no one in particular. Meaning he intends to speak in a generality to distinguish two different people or two different positions, okay? One says, on the one hand, that I have faith, and the other one says, I have works. So he's painting a picture here of two different theological positions. So then we're led to conclude that this hypothetical objector's objection is limited to you have faith. I have works. But then James responds to this assertion in the following. He says, show me. In other words, make visible, reveal your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He's arguing, James is, that good works and faith are not mutually exclusive. They are not separate entities. They are inseparable. They cannot be divorced. Only where works are seen is genuine saving faith present. That's very important to understand. Without works revealing saving faith, what you have is a cold, dead, intellectual, academic orthodoxy. And now here's where it gets even more interesting. Where in creation... Do we see the most horrific example of dead faith coupled with a lack of works? Text tells us in the unseen spiritual realm. Look at verse 19. He says to the imaginary objector, claiming that faith without works is sufficient, he says, You believe God is one, you do well. In other words, he says, it's almost, it's almost like a hint of sarcasm here. You get, you get the idea he's saying, you verbally profess one truth about who God is. Good for you. Congratulations. Aren't you special? You can affirm the Shema, but how does that make you any different than the fallen angels? He says the demons also believe and shudder. The word shudder here, It literally means to bristle 
with having one's hair stand on end. Have you ever used the English idiom, I could feel the hair stand up on the back of my neck? You're so shooken up and you're so afraid that you say, I can feel the hair stand up on the back of my neck. You guys ever said that or heard that before? Well, we get that from this. The demons are so petrified of God that they live in a constant state of shudder. Now, let that be on a side note. That is very important in your understanding of the theology of demons. Compared to God, they're nothing. Compared to God, they're powerless. All they do is sit around and shudder at the sight and sound of God. But back, that's, that's another topic for another time. Back to this text. Why do the demons live in a constant state of dreadful fear? Because they know it's coming to them. They know that eternal torment awaits them. They know the end of the story. Matthew eight twenty nine, as Jesus approached the two demon-possessed men, they saw him coming and they cried out, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And notice in that one verse, they know who Jesus was. They affirmed his personhood. And they also had an accurate eschatology. So they live in fear. Isn't that a shocking statement? The demons believe. How does that work? In what way do the demons believe? Well, to put it simply, they know what you know. In fact, they know way more than what you will ever know. One scholar says that the demons doubtless have a clear knowledge of the millennium and its revealed truths in the end times. Then does even the most devoted Bible scholar... But all that knowledge, divinely and eternally significant as it is, cannot save them. They merely assent to the knowledge. It does not cause them to obey, to serve, to worship, to bow down, to repent. It just fuels their hatred and rebellion against Christ. With an unceasing fierceness, and fear that we as humans cannot even begin to comprehend because we don't see it. Now, the application to this text is, is, is staunchly needed for all of us. It applies to especially people like me who study and teach theology day in and day out. As one who has the immense privilege of making my living as a pastor teacher, I need to be very careful that my sermon prep does not become a redundant exercise. Because at the end of the day, the amount I understand and know doesn't mean anything if it doesn't translate to good works. For the student, whether you're in a Bible institute, a seminary, a Bible college, a Bible study, whatever, 
being exposed to all types of theology, good and bad, can have the tendency to weaken or even destroy one's faith. You ever heard somebody of somebody saying that I went to cemetery, not seminary? Because places that are originally created to train pastors to preach the word of God have become places full of dead man's bones because all they do is bicker and study and argue about liberal theology. That's why it's very important to go to a good Bible school or seminary. But as for you, if, if you guys are never going to be a professional teacher or preacher or a student of theology... You're still a student of the word regardless, right? You are all given the immense privilege of having a Bible and and having the ability to read it and study it for yourself. And it, it, it can be easy for you, too, to drift into a cold, dead orthodoxy by allowing your spiritual disciplines to become another chore on your daily to do list. You can learn a lot about God. You may even be able to stump a pastor or a theologian with the knowledge you have. But guess what? If that is all your faith boils down to, it's useless. Useless. And James further asks in verse 20, But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. It's inactive. It's idle. It's lazy. It's gluttonous. It's indolent. It's sloth, slothful. It's false. It's unprofitable. Perhaps the best way to see what this useless faith looks like is in a man named Simon from Acts 8. Do you guys remember that story? Simon the magician from Acts 8. He was a magician who was astonishing people of Samaria with his magic arts. And after he witnessed the preaching of Philip, he believed. And he was even baptized. Wow. But what did he do following his public profession of faith? Well, what he did revealed that his faith was useless. Let's see what it says. He craved the same power and authority as the apostles had. So what did he do? Offered him some money, right? Because money talks, right? Money always talks. So he thought he could bribe the apostle Peter. But I love Peter because he, he just does like it is. Notice his response. It's not, it's not a soft, gentle response. It's a very quick, sharp statement of condemnation. Acts 8, verse 20 and following. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you have thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter and your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Whew. 
that's pretty, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? Peter saw right through his useless faith. He believed. He was even dunked. But then he, he proves that his faith was not genuine by trying to bribe Peter for the ability to give the Holy Spirit. Peter said, may your silver perish with you. So, brothers and sisters, you see, here's the point, that it is possible, it is possible to profess a useless and dead faith in Christ like Simon. And what does this teach us? What does this teach us? It teaches us that by itself, listen, and this might be hard for someone to hear. It was hard for me the first time I heard it, okay? By itself, your profession of faith means absolutely nothing if it is void of obedience to Christ. Profession of faith means nothing if it is void of obedience to Christ. Good works reveal saving faith. Now, the third clarification that James offers us with regard to relationship between works and faith is that good works are the result of saving faith. Good works are the result of saving faith in the rest of the passage this morning. James illustrates this fundamental truth using two key Old Testament people. And I wish, I wish uh, th- this sermon could just be a sermon all of its own, verses 21 and 26, because we could go back to the Old Testament and, and kind of do a, a reintroduction of these narratives, but we don't have time. So I encourage you to go back and read about Abraham and Rahab later. But for now, let's just focus on verse 21 through 23. Abraham, we're going to see that he proved his saving faith by his obedience. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Verse 24, now you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Whoa. Whew. What are you going to do with that, guys? Huh? Does that create a problem if you're a good Lutheran? If you're a good Bible-believing Protestant? Well, let me just say no. You can take a deep breath. It does not present a problem. It does not contradict Pauline theology. On the surface, it might look that way. On the surface, the question that's immediately brought to your mind um, is, how does the straightforward reading of this verse jive with Paul or Jesus or the church fathers or the reformers? Let me remind you that Paul clearly said in Galatians 2.16 that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. By works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Jesus proclaimed in the most popular verse in America, John 3.16, all one must do to gain eternal life is what? Believe. Not believe and work, not believe and be baptized, not believe and follow these laws. He commanded in Luke 
13.3, repent or perish. Peter preached in Acts 3.19, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. And the church fathers taught salvation was attained through faith alone. I bring this up because you need to understand that the Catholics don't own the patristic fathers. They don't own them. Just because they give the man the title of saint doesn't mean he's Roman Catholic, okay? Example, Athanasius, 4th century early church father, said, quote, By surrendering to death the body of Christ, which he, Jesus, had taken as an offering and sacrifice free from stain, and he immediately abolished death for his human brothers by the offering of the equivalent. For naturally... Since the Logos of God, the Word of God, Jesus, was above all, he offered his own temple and bodily instrument as a substitute for the life of all. He fulfilled by death all that was required. Implication, if Jesus fulfilled all that was required, then there's no more work to be done. You can say amen. There's no more sacrifices, which means there's no need for a, a, a priest or an altar or a temple. There's no need for penance. That's a man-made doctrine, which is the practice of self-expiation to remove guilt. There's no purgatory. It's an invention, a fanciful place where sinners are refined to enter into heaven. All of those things I just mentioned are false and useless if Jesus is enough. And he is. He is enough. And through faith in his perfect, complete work, it is credited to your account and it is sufficient. It's sufficient. If you profess that and believe it and understand it, then everything else to be contributed to your salvation through sacrament or work or ritual is a waste of time. Reject it with passion. You don't have to perform an unknowable amount of work to obtain holy perfection, which is what you need to stand before God. He gives it freely. If you only believe and repent... The church fathers taught that also because they believed that's what the apostles taught. The reformers taught that. They gambled with their lives when they stood up in front of Rome and said that faith is all that's required for salvation. Okay, so now, back to James, which is it? Someone might say, do we go with James or the reformers, the church fathers, Paul, Peter, and Jesus? Hmm, five against one? Is that how we weigh our theology? Is that how we decide what a theology is? No. Some people think that. Some people think so, though. When we interpret the Bible accurately, literally, grammatically, historically, paying attention to the context, and allow it to stand in judgment over history, we clearly see that the apostles do not disagree with one another, and certainly none of them disagree with Jesus. We must keep in mind first the immediate context of James and also the broad context of the whole New Testament. 
Here is also where our systematic theology comes to play. You have a solid understanding of justification. It provides you a guardrail for your thinking so you do not veer off and plunge down the cliff. So what we understand through first what the Word of God teaches about justification, through what history has revealed, and or affirmed rather, so we can understand through our study that James's use of justified in this passage, particularly verse 24, listen, if I lost you, check back in right now, okay? James's use of justified in verse 24 does not refer to one's judicial stand before God. If you take that position, then consistency forces you to say that Jesus was in need of that same justification. You want to know why? 1 Peter 3.16, Paul wrote that Jesus was vindicated, which is the same word. That's also translated justified in the Greek. Paul wrote that Jesus was vindicated in the spirit. So are you willing to say that Jesus was justified, legally declared righteous in God's sight, in the same way that you were? you got some pretty hefty Christological problems if you think so. No, Jesus did not need to be justified. But he was vindicated. In what way? Well, in a way that the Holy Spirit approved Jesus' personhood at his baptism. Matthew recorded that Jesus saw when they came up out of the water that the Spirit of God was descending as a dove and lighting on him. And that testimony of the Holy Spirit revealed the legitimacy and authenticity of Jesus' ministry. So the Spirit vindicated or justified, comes from the same Greek word, the Spirit vindicated Jesus in the sense that he was confirmed as the Son of God before men. So James, in the same way, is not speaking of Abraham's legal standing before God, but about the good works that confirm or vindicate his saving faith. Which was rooted in righteousness that was credited to him when he believed in verse 23. In other words, Abraham's faith was confirmed by his works. His works are the result of his saving faith. So important to understand in this passage. We are saved by faith alone, but we are not saved by faith that is alone. That's what James is saying. Because that's not true faith. True faith is vindicated, confirmed, or you could say justified by its works. So understand this section of Scripture. Again, James is not saying that we're saved judiciously, that we are safe from the wrath to come by works. What can a dead man do? Dead men can do nothing. How can he work? He is justified. He is given faith. He is given repentance as a gift. 
and his works confirm the validity of that faith. The truth is also illustrated in the act of another Old Testament figure, Rahab. And uh, you can read about Rahab on Joshua 2, but we don't have time to go through this morning. She also proved her faith by risking her own neck to hide the spies, the messengers of God. In verse 25 it says, In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works, vindicated by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? We understand that Rahab was the stark contrast to Abraham. She was a prostitute, a common citizen, a Gentile, a Canaanite, who did something that proved her saving faith in Yahweh. Before the conquest of the promised land that was promised to the Jews, Joshua came up to Jericho and he sent in two spies to check it out. But they were found out by the king of Jericho. They found themselves hidden in a place where this lady named Rahab was working. And as providence would have it, she just so happened to be on their team. And instead of turning them in to the the king of Jericho, she risked her life. She gave a false report to the soldiers. And she provided a way of escape to the two Israelite spies. Now, in no way is James or God affirming the deceitfulness. But it was seen as an act of obedience because it resulted, because that was a result of her trust in God. She feared God. Because she feared God more than Jericho, she protected the messengers of God. And that was seen as her faith being vindicated. And on verse 26, James ends this section with a final note. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. That is to say that just as the body without the spirit is useless, right? A, 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 a spiritual zombie can do nothing for God. So is professed faith without works. So isn't James' point clear? Isn't his point abundantly clear? Abraham and Rahab stand as examples of fallible sinners who were saved by faith alone, but proved they possessed salvation by their mouth, by their obedience to God. Now, as a minister of the gospel, just to wrap it up here, I am a minister of the gospel. I am a messenger. And so I must urge you, as Paul urged his sheep, to consider the sobering truth today. Consider the sobering truth today that there are many who profess faith in Christ but will not be saved. The Bible calls you to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. And this self-testing is done by, number one, asking yourself, do I believe right doctrine? And has my professed 
belief been proven by my obedience to Jesus Christ, my master. Father, thank you so much for this truth. Thank you that we can be sure of our salvation. Thank you that we can know that Jesus has given us eternal life through your word, but also as you've revealed through James, through our works. That those who have a genuine desire to love you and serve you and obey you and love the church, your bride, despite her blemishes, despite her wrinkles, despite her imperfection, Father, we are called to love whom you love, your church. Oh, Lord God, if there are any here today who are not sure of their salvation because their works are lacking, give them the fear. Give them the sight to see they need you and to believe and repent in the gospel. That you came and died and provided a perfect sacrifice for sin. You died in our place on the cross so we can go free and live. Only through faith in your work can we be declared righteous. We thank you for your word, Lord. Help us to apply these things today. In Jesus' name.